0: Welcome to the High Point Baptist Church Sermon Cast, expository Bible sermons from the preaching and teaching ministry of High Point Baptist Church in Larksville, Pennsylvania, for the glory of God and the proclamation of His Word. We thank you for listening. And now, High Point Baptist Church pastor-teacher, Pastor Matt Tarr. And
1: uh, as, as we minister in the Word of God now, for the preaching of His Word, we have a full time this morning. After our message, of course, we'll be moving right into communion. And um, that communion will be somewhat a part of our message this morning. And after that, of course, we'll dismiss a little bit early, as close to 1145 as possible, so that uh, we can relieve all the nursery workers and children's ministry workers Uh, from their responsibility so they can join us very quickly for our annual business meeting at noon. And so you'll be able to take a very quick respite and be back in here at noon. Uh, We have the agenda. We have the details of that for you. We're not going to belabor the point as we normally do, as was explained to you in the letters that we sent home. Um, You have all the information that we believe that you need that we normally communicate and take a service to do, but uh, with various circumstances and um, uh, the, the Where Christmas fell this year, uh, we thought it would be easier to get all the data to you uh, in your hands in written form, and then you can just come and uh, we'll uh, have our meeting and then dismiss so that we can enjoy one another's company and fellowship for tonight. So we look forward to that. Let's pray, though, before we do then transition into the ministry of the Word. Father, we are once again thankful for the reminder that we have in this Christmas season for all the, of all the wonderful things that you have done on our behalf, and that we, because of your work, have been crucified with Christ and risen again with Christ as well having been made new. And having been made new, we can love as we should as we are reminded of the love that came down at Christmas. Pray that our souls would be humbled, our spirits teachable and eager to apply your truth. And we pray these things in your son's name. Amen. Well, Christmas is always one of the busiest months of the year, for all of us, but even in all the busyness, it brings us back to the cardinal truths of our faith. And in those things, we don't forget, or at least we shouldn't, reminds us of the very first principles. Christmas shows us the summation of the Christian faith, the summation of doctrine, the summation of what we see having taught in the Scriptures, Christmas reminds us the summation of the Christian spirit. Christmas is a picture of generosity and love. When the perfect Son of God came from a perfect heaven to a fallen earth, the righteous God incarnate and took upon Himself the penalty for sin in the world. And so that is why I thought it would be a good reminder for us to look at how we who have received Christ's love should respond to Christ's love as we are reminded of his love at Christmas time. A little bit different of an approach that we're taking this Christmas season, but hopefully helpful nonetheless. And by should, respond. In view of Christ's love for us, I hope that you understand I do not mean should as in ought, but should as in must, because living the love of Christ is indicative of having been regenerated. It obviously makes no sense whatsoever, we who have been resurrected into newness of life, to continue to live as though we had still spiritual death. It is as irrational and illogical as to say that Lazarus himself was given new bodily physical resurrection and has been given new life, physical life, and to expect him to continue living as a dead man. And yet the great scandal of American evangelicalism has been that it is completely rational for us who claim to have newness of spiritual life to say it is permissible and acceptable for us to live as though we are still dead in our trespasses and sins. That makes no sense at all. And so, yes, we should respond to the love of Christ and live in a way that is consistent with it, but not should as in ought, should as in must. It is what characterizes us as the people of God. This is by which you know who belongs to Christ. As Jesus himself told his disciples we saw last week, by this you know the world will know you are my disciples. You belong to me by your love for one another. And so last Sunday, of course, we began this series when love came down at Christmas. And for us who've received that love, what that means for our love for the world. In fact, we took both Sunday morning and Sunday night to look at that. And this morning we're looking at the love that God's people have For the local church. And note that I didn't say here, lest I confuse you, love that the people of God should have for the church, but love for the church that the people of God do have. Our love for the local church is a point of urgent concern to me, just as our love for the world is a point of urgent concern to me. But I frequently interact with those who are quite adamant, frankly. and telling me that they love Jesus Christ while there is no expression of that love for His body. But as we look at this, we're not going to do a full exposition of any one text this morning. We're not going to be looking at um, anything really in extensive detail. But What we will be looking at, hopefully, is what we would consider the beauty of the forest in exchange for the trees. And we don't want to miss the forest for the trees, and so really just looking at how compelling the summation of the evidence is for why we should love the church, should as a must. And then we'll wrap up in a way that sets the table for tonight, and I hope that in the end you'll see how your love for the person of Christ is expressed in your love for His body, that is to say, the local church. These are in no way conclusive, these reasons, though perhaps one day I might write a more exhaustive list. There were many more reasons I thought of even that we're not going to get to or address this morning, so really these just represent a few. I'm going to give you, in the time that we have, five reasons why we love the church. Five reasons why we love the church. And the first one is because in the church, we demonstrate the Imago Dei. In the church, we demonstrate the image of God. We go all the way to Genesis chapter 1 when God looked upon all His creation and saw that it was good. And in Genesis chapter 1, in that goodness of His creation, we read in verse 27 that God created man in His own image. In the image of God, He created him. There is, of course, more to the image of God than fellowship in the Trinitarian Godhead, but that is certainly a component of it. And so, in the body, we express fellowship that represents and demonstrates the fellowship within the Trinitarian Godhead. Like I said, much more to the image of God than that, but certainly a significant part of that. And and then in Genesis chapter 2, in a perfect and sinless world, where man enjoyed perfect fellowship with his Father and his Creator, God looked at man whom he created and said it was not good for him to have perfect fellowship with himself alone. It was not good for man to be alone. From the very beginning, even in a perfect world, God did not create man to live autonomously. And that was before the fall, before sin entered the world. And since sin entered into the world, fellowship is even more important today. You could also look at the testimony of Israel to support that. The importance of fellowship, but fellowship in the context of ancient Israel and in, in the context and understanding of accountability that fellowship brings. We could look at the prophets and learn from the importance of admonishment, both of which are undermined in isolationism. Even the fellowship of the family falls short on these two critical points. Though accountability and admonishment happen at the most personal and intimate levels, to be sure, in the family, the family is not at the same time a reliable nor a sufficient source of accountability and admonishment left to itself. But even at the most fundamental level, God created mankind for fellowship, not just fellowship with himself, but fellowship with one another. And when we fellowship with one another, there is a real sense where we reflect the oneness of God in his three members, while also demonstrating the fellowship that he has with himself in the tr- Trinity. And in fact, Paul himself writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12, very similarly, For even as the body is one and yet has many members, and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. And in verse 14, we read, for the body is not one member, but many. One body, many members in fellowship with one another. In Romans chapter 12, verses 4 and 5, for just as we have many members in one body and all the members do not have the same function, so we, who are many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. And so that might be our first reason because in the fellowship of the local church, we have in one another or with one another, we demonstrate the image of God in His own love for His fellowship within the Trinitarian Godhead. But if we were to look at the New Testament as we should, because we need to hone in a little bit and bring in the reins to address, well, we need fellowship in general, but do we need fellowship within the context of the local church? And we look at the New Testament for that. But we secondly need to love the church and do love the church because in the church we demonstrate the very will of God. First, we love the church because the church demonstrates the image of God. Secondly, because in the church we demonstrate the will of God. If you do look in the New Testament, we're not going to look at any one passage, but you'll find 59 verses, 59 verses, all commands related to unity, hospitality, devotion, and edification expressed in the one and other commands of the New Testament. There are many other commands that require those very same virtues within the context of the local church. But if we're just going to hone in on the one and commands, there are 59 verses that address our unity, hospitality, devotion, and edification. None of which, by the way, can be fulfilled in some kind of personal, individual, autonomous relationship between me and God or even a personal fellowship with my local family, but can only be expressed with regard to the local church, not even the universal church. There are many, many uh, contemporary Christians that will try to maintain, well, while I love the universal church, I do not believe that I need to love or commit or dedicate myself to, which is characteristic of love, the local church. I'm not gonna tell you all fifty nine of these, but just to give you an idea, I'll read to you a few of them. First Peter chapter one verse twenty two says Since you have an obedience to the truth, you hear something of an assumption here Purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren We're the brethren the brethren is in reference to the local church. Your brothers and sisters in Christ, whom you worship with, whom you fellowship, whom you know in the local church, fervently love one another from the heart. There's one. Then in chapter 3, verse 8, Peter also writes to sum up all of you Be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble in spirit. All those adjectives there are plural meaning that Peter's grammar is consistent with the context. Because you might not have heard, well, I thought that was a one another, we're talking about one another commands, I didn't hear one another there. But the grammar indicates that we are talking about the one another's. He's not saying to be hospitable toward any one person. He has the body and mind here. Again, that's the context, and the plural adjectives that he uses support that. If you skip over to 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 9... In verse 10, we also read here, Be hospitable to one another without complaint, as each one has received a special gift. Employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. As they say, that'll preach. Each of you have been given a special gift to use for the sake of the body of Christ. you know why you've been given a gift to serve the body of Christ? Because the body of Christ has a need. And the body of Christ is Christ's. And Christ declares himself in need. And how do you respond? Peter assumes that we would understand if we are a Christian and we've been given a gift to serve the body of Christ with, which can all be expressed in the local body, it will be employed in serving one another, and that is a matter of stewardship. In chapter 5, verse 5, still in 1 Peter, all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, and then in chapter 5, verse 14, Peter writes, greet one another really difficult to do from your couch from our flat screen television bedside churches youtube churches in 1 John chapter 1 verse 7 the apostle John writes be at peace with one another then in chapter 3 verse 11 he says for this is the message that you have heard from the beginning that you should love one another. In other words, we're not inventing anything novel here. This isn't anything new. Again, this this is cardinal. This is essential, fundamental doctrine of the Christian faith. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 13 says to encourage one another. And in chapter 10, verses 24 to 25, let us consider how to stimulate one another to love in good deeds. Interesting. Not forsaking the assembling together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. Interesting. Then in Hebrews chapter 10, the author there even contrasts the impossibility of fulfilling Christ's expectations for you without the local church. With faithful dedication to him. In Hebrews chapter 13 verse 1, this isn't a one another command. But it still proves the point. Let love, present active imperative. In case you don't know what that means, that means it's mandatory. It's not optional. It is an imperative command. Let love of the brethren continue. Another present active imperative command. So let love and continue in that love are both imperatives. James 5 9. Do not complain, brethren, against one another, so that you yourselves may not be judged. You say, Well, I don't have to have a church to keep that one. Well, I mean, if I'm not a part of a body, I am the YouTube bedside church going Christian, flat screen church Christian. I'm not going to complain anything about the body because I'm not interacting with the body. But it's interesting because I've yet to meet a Christian who is not a part of the body and yet who doesn't complain about the body. Usually, in fact, they are those who are the most critical of the body, complain about it the most. And yet they're not even a part of the body. But what they really mean is that that they don't complain about any one person in the body, not that they don't complain about the body of Christ, they just don't complain about any one person in the body. And so they have an oversimplistic view of that exhortation, but they're also not going to be able to keep James' counter-commands to complaining. James doesn't just say, don't complain about the body. He is saying also, in contrast to that, throughout the whole rest of chapter 5, there are other things that we are to fulfill, such as in verse 16. Confess your sins to one another and pray for... One another, and we haven't even said anything about the Apostle Paul's one another commands in Romans chapter. Uh, well, just many chapters actually in the book of Romans, or his one another commands in First and Second Corinthians, or in Galatians, or in Ephesians, or in Philippians, or Colossians, or First Thessalonians. Paul writes more one another commands that are to be expressed and fulfilled and can only be expressed and fulfilled in the context of the local church than any other writer in the New Testament. In fact, Paul Paul gives us about 60% of the one another commands in the New Testament. More than half. By the way, he is not the predominant writer of the New Testament either. Luke is. But, like I said, oh, by the way, half of what Luke writes is about the church, the book of Acts. But nonetheless, like I said, we look at all 59 of these one another verses, but they all address commands that can only be fulfilled in the context of the local church. And, and folks, to state the obvious, that's a lot of commands. That is a lot that Christ expects. Those are a lot of commands being disobeyed if we don't fellowship with the local church, and disobedience is sin. That's a lot of sin that then characterizes the one who says that they love Christ, no matter how moralistic they might otherwise appear to be. And of course... Jesus said in John fourteen twenty three and 24, what is the point of this? How is our obedience indicative of love? Well, Jesus himself said, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And he who does not love me does not keep my words. Third. Third reason why we love the church is because in the church we demonstrate that we love what Christ loves. First, we love the church because in the church we demonstrate the image of God. Secondly, we love the church because in the church we demonstrate the will of God. Third, we love the church because in the church we demonstrate that we love what Christ loves. We have looked at this in the past. You can turn to Ephesians chapter 5. In the past, we've set up the case that we must love the church because Christ loves the church, and we are to be like Christ. We are to love what Christ loves. And we are to hate the sin that He hates. And Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25, talks about Christ's own love for the church, so much so that He laid down His life for her. Verses 26 to 27, So that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. That he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless." Isn't that interesting he gave her his most dedicated love in order that she would become what she ought to be there are many hypocrites who will not show that kind of dedicated love unless their church is what it already ought to be. And I don't say hypocrites to be mean, to be unkind, to be abrasive, Be harsh, but because it's reality. And I say that for two reasons. For one, because they require a certain level of holiness and maturity from the church before they'll dedicate themselves to her, while at the same time, they require Christ's dedication to themselves even while they were yet enemies. That is the exact kind of judgment Christ condemned in Matthew chapter 7 verses 1 and 2, for in the way you judge, you will be judged and by your standard of measure. What is the personal pronoun there? Whose standard? God's standard or your standard? By your standard of measure it will be measured to you. But also secondly, because they fail to realize the significance of their own condition, they require that for them to give their love, the church must by some measure already be made complete in Christ. And yet they fail to realize that by joining themselves to such a body, they have now made what they perceive to be perfect imperfect. Imperfect. Because they themselves are imperfect and sinful, and they have just become a part of the body. <laughs> and Jesus condemned that as well in Matthew chapter 7, verse 3. Why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? And so it is in that context that hypocrite is the Lord's term, not mine. And so I stand by it. So Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her back in Ephesians 5.25 because he already found in her a certain quality and beauty that just needed to be dressed up, dolled up a little bit. Hardly. Hardly. He laid down his life for the church so that she would become all that she could and ought to be. And that he showed that kind of love to the church should be sufficient. The point here in Ephesians chapter 5 being that this is the kind of love that husbands ought to have for their wives. Husband is to love his wife as he loves his own body. and, And he is to show the dedication to her as he is to himself. Because... That is the kind of love that Christ has shown to His church. And it goes without saying then also that those who belong to Christ loves what Christ loves. And since our love can't be an invisible one, just as a husband's love for his wife cannot be an invisible one, to say so would contradict the very meaning of love as it is described by Christ. We cannot merely be referring to a love for the invisible church. That's, not, that's another way to say the universal church. But rather, this is a visible love, and therefore, our love is shown in the visible church. The local church. To say it again, Christ did not love the church because it was without fault. Because she was all that she ought to be. He did not love the church because she loved him as she should, or even because she loved him at all. He loved her simply because he chose to do so and gave up his life in order to make what was impure pure, what was hateful loving. In other words, Christ didn't walk into church and say, yes, everything is just right here, everything looks as it should, therefore I will dedicate myself to her, love her, serve her faithfully, even give up my life for her. You know, and I know, that the exact opposite is true. Now, I think that perhaps the reason why we have such difficulty loving the church today because is because with the lack of our lack of conformity with the heart and mind of Christ. So... The first reason that we should love the church is because our Lord Jesus, or rather the, uh, the third reason that, that we should love the church is because our Lord Jesus Christ loved the church. Again, we're not saying anything novel here. We're not saying anything new. This is basic stuff. Basic, fundamental Christianity 101. I mean, you ought to be able to clep out of this class. After all, Paul said in Romans chapter 13, verse 8, Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. For he who loves has fulfilled the law. Fourth, fourth reason why we love the church is because in the church we demonstrate the work of Christ. Of course, as we grow in sanctification, we continually display the work of Christ in us. And a body is a. Uh, necessary component of that work. We demonstrate the selfless sacrifice of Christ when we selflessly serve one another. We demonstrate the love of Christ when we grow in our love for one another. We demonstrate our love for the glory of God as we worship Him together with Christ. And we demonstrate the work of Christ, of course, when we grow in our sanctification in the local church is a necessary component of that sanctifying process. In Colossians chapter 3, verses 14 and 16, we read, "...beyond all these things put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your heart to God. The word admonishing there means to counsel. It's an instructive warning. That's what counseling is. You need to stop this unbiblical pattern of thinking and living. That's the responsibility of the church. And it also carries a connotation and would be translated in other contexts as discipline or reproof which is another sanctifying responsibility of the church outlined in Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 to 18. But Christ has also given to the church two ordinances that do demonstrate His work that should be fulfilled in the church because of what they express with regard to our relationship with His body. We are commanded to be baptized, and Romans 6 tells us what we are illustrating in baptism. Of course, the Greek word baptizo is a word that is translated transliterated rather as baptism or to baptize in our English texts, but it simply means to cleanse or to immerse. Either one. But because we understand of what we understand what baptism is illustrating, namely that we are demonstrating our union with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection, of course, that's why we affirm the definition of baptism as immersion, but we have another ordinance as well that has been given to the church, like I said, that we'll be participating even yet as a part of this message this morning as we wrap up here, called communion. And you understand what we're demonstrating in communion as well. As the men do come forward, I invite them to do so at this time. Uh, We are demonstrating communion And fellowship is intrinsic to that word itself. It has been our practice that we remind ourselves of the fellowship and unity that we have in Christ with one another before our annual business meeting. That just seems to make good sense to us. And we'll be having that in just a few minutes, as you know. But as we take these elements, we communicate our communion with our Lord. And our fellowship with one another. Which is why if you hold a grudge or hold something against someone or do not have unity with someone, Paul warns us sternly in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 27, that you are mocking the unity of the body. And you eat and drink judgment against yourself because you do so. Your actions deny the very thing that you confess to affirm. But communion itself expresses the fulfillment of God's promise in Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 to 33. Behold, days are coming, declares Yahweh when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, although I was husband to them, declares Yahweh. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declared Yahweh. I will put my law within them, and on their heart, I will write it. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And it is that new covenant that we're going to demonstrate together now. As we read in First Corinthians chapter 11, verse 26, Whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord, you proclaim the Lord's death
0: until he comes. You've been listening to the expository Bible teaching of our pastor-teacher, Pastor Matt Tarr, on the High Point Baptist Church Sermon Cast, and we pray you have been blessed by what you've heard. If you have any questions about the gospel of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, or if you would like to speak with someone concerning salvation through faith, please reach out to us right away. It would be a great joy and blessing to minister to you. Contact information can be found on our website, If you have any additional questions or comments regarding this sermon, would like to know more about our church, or would like to submit a prayer request, just visit us online at highpointbaptist.church. Additional sermons can be found on the Sermoncast page of our website and may be downloaded or streamed free of charge. Our website again is highpointbaptist.church. Thank you again for listening. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Copyright 2018, High Point Baptist Church, All Rights Reserved.